Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., I'm going to ask you a question, and because I know what this interview is about Uh and that you conducted the interview, you're going to have the answer. Okay. (laughs) A friend of mine Uh has a friend who Uh started a very successful conference business. Yes. Out of nothing. Okay. And my friend asked his friend, how'd you do it? Uh-huh. And he said, well, we had zero interest. And so what we did was we created a lottery system. Mm. You couldn't just sign up for the conference. Ooh. You had to enter into a lottery in yeah. which you were invited to sign up for the conference. Yeah. And the conference blew up because people didn't think they could get in. <laughs> JJ, <laughs> yes. today's interview is all about that. It is. And, it's, and, and our guest, your guest, because yeah. you conducted the interview, is going to explain why. What is that called? Scarcity. Created yes. scarcity. Today's interview is about <laughs> scarcity. It is. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Kelly Goldsmith. and She's at Vanderbilt, right? Yeah. She works there and has a fascinating story background in some reality television that you'll hear about <laughs> and about the school she's been at. Unbelievable kind of like resume but she studies scarcity and how scarcity impacts buying habits, thought patterns. We're living in a world right now where everything is about scarcity. We're running out of oil. We're running out of water, running out of good weather. Things to run out of. I mean, everything is, (laughs) even a scarcity mindset of like, I don't have what everybody has on Instagram. We kind of live in this culture of scarcity right now. It is a big motivator of behavior. Yeah, and so she studies how that works. And it's interesting. I I don't want to spoil it too much because she gets really into it, but scarcity can do exactly what you were talking about in, in a marketing perspective of where it can kind of up the interest and where people fight for resources. But scarcity, she talks about this, can also create collaboration. And I'll kind of let Boy, her talk really to really important. That's yeah. important just to create a, a more peaceful society. Exactly. And so oh. ultimately, there's a whole bunch of different perspective on scarcity and generosity and the attitude it creates, the habits it forms, the buying habits people have. It's really kind of amazing. And we get into it. And also, she's just hilarious. I love this interview because it just really it, it changed my perspective in many ways on you think of scarcity. Well, it sounds really helpful. A lot of people don't wake up and say, OK, how can I frame whatever I'm doing with a sense of scarcity to yep. increase interest and demand. You know, this sounds like it's going to help us figure out a little bit of how to do that. Yeah, there's like some good, even it's, some it's practical, a very practical tips in there. Tip. Yeah, so it's really cool. How'd you meet Dr. Goldsman? Uh, we got introduced from a mutual friend who said, I think you guys would really hit it off. Well, <laughs> so you apparently did. We did. We went to coffee and ended up talking Couple for like doctors. three hours. Just, yeah. just talk. Just, just doctors doctor at talk. Starbucks. It's not a, it wasn't a big deal. It was not a big deal. <laughs> well, thanks for doing the interview. Um, we won't wait any longer. Here is JJ's conversation with Dr. Kelly Goldsmith. Kelly, thanks so much for being here. It is my pleasure. Now, you and I got introduced through a mutual friend. Yes. And we sat down for coffee and immediately, like, we talked for a couple hours and could have talked for probably it about was 30 more. love at first sight. I was <laughs> so excited. Was. And we're neighbors here. Like, we're office neighbors here, just blocks I know, apart. because you're at Vanderbilt. Correct. And you have a fascinating kind of story of what got you into education and what you yes. study. And it involves Yale. And it involves the TV show Survivor. 
survivor it and it involves all this other stuff. Yes. I want to talk about, so you studied behavioral marketing. Yeah, that's at, my PhD. At, in mm-hmm. PhD at Yale. And that actually does tie into your time at Survivor, sure. right? Yeah. When you, Because I've heard your TED Talk. On there, you talk about how... One of the things you thought about while you were on Survivor is that when the cameras are off, people are actually really nice to each other because you have to work together to survive. Mm -hmm. And you started thinking about the idea of scarcity and how that impacts people. And you teach about scarcity, you research the scarcity mindset, and in marketing... A lot of times we, you know, we know that if people are like 24 hours left right. and all these different things, or you say this is a limited edition release, that that creates a scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that at least in the short term that that works really well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. on a, on just a practical kind of level. But talk to me about what got you interested back mm-hmm. in Ace, learning about scarcity and kind of the mindset and how even Survivor impacted that on your studies. Yeah, I will say, so coming out of my PhD program, I got to Northwestern. And here, I mean, it was, the Survivor thing was a really interesting experience with scarcity of a whole different kind, like real scarcity of food yeah, and literal, water. Yeah, literal scarcity. Literal yeah. scarcity. Like, we call it visceral scarcity. Not countdown clock yeah, scarcity. Yeah, not countdown <laughs> clock. Not like, I don't have as much money as my neighbor. Like, actually, like, not Instagram. Oh my God, she's better looking than me. Like, real scarcity. When I was on the job market, so the academic job market is weird and super long, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. very long con to try to get an academic job. So I went on the job market in uh, 2008. So like right in the middle of the recession, right? Yeah. Which is the worst time to yeah. go on the job, yeah. job market. And this is after, at that point, four and a half years in my grad program. So it's like, you know, the last thing you want to do is not get a job after all this effort. Not maybe not blood, but definitely sweat and tears were <laughs> yeah, shed yeah. in grad school. <laughs> so, uh, so this was shaping up to be a, a real disaster for me. That really got me thinking about scarcity because it was like all day, every day. I'm hearing from my advisor. I'm hearing from other you know people in my cohort about all of these schools that, if you remember at the time, like people don't necessarily think about how things like a recession would affect a university. Yeah, because people usually think about universities in terms of like. Are you getting enough students, right? Which is yeah. part of it. But at a school like Yale or at these big ticket schools like Stanford, they have these endowments, and that is actually most of where their revenue comes from, right? Not the tuition. Right? Yeah. And so at Yale, their endowment went down by 50%, which oh, wow. is crazy, yeah. right? During the recession. So everyone's freaking out. And what do you do? You, of course, you immediately try to cut costs, right? Yeah. And at a university, one of probably the most expensive costs, like you can't not give students dorm rooms or anything, right? So one of the most expensive discretionary costs is going to be faculty. Yeah. So you know, here I am going on the academic job market and just school after school, the jobs were being frozen, right? They couldn't hire. And so I'm now like quadruply terrified. Yeah. But what's interesting is, it wasn't like I, unlike Survivor, where there was that real visceral scarcity, like actual hunger, actual thirst. On the job market, it wasn't like I actually experienced objective scarcity. It was really just this threat. Like Uh there might not be enough to go around. And it was so looming. And if you guys can, you know, wind it back to that time of 2008, 2009, it wasn't even just the economic recession, which was a big deal and and got a lot of airtime, but it was also, you know, with climate change, et cetera, et cetera, like an seemingly endless discussion of what the world was running out of. And that scarcity mindset just seemed like you couldn't turn on the television or the radio or whatever. It was the radio back in 2008, 2009, (laughs) right? Like you couldn't turn on anything without hearing about what, what these kind of threats to our future and the threats to our resources. So when I took the job at Kellogg, 
Um, I thought, well, I want to understand how these, um, we, we called them at the time, like scarcity-related cues. So like, again, you you see in a magazine and the cover is an article about how we're running out of these global commodities, or you hear you know a podcast about how the economic recession, et cetera, right? Even if they don't directly affect you, much like, the, I ended up getting a job, a great job, right? Yeah. So much like the fact that schools were losing their endowments didn't directly affect me, but merely being exposed to these scarcity-related cues, how did it affect the way we think? And how did it affect the way we treat each other, which then circled back to my experiences on Survivor? I personally feel like exposure to scarcity-related information is something that we all encounter all the time, yeah. especially with social media, right? Like keeping up with the Joneses, et cetera, et cetera. Like even if we don't experience what I call objective scarcity, which is when we're actually running out of something that we need, right? So money, food other resources. We can we experience a sense of subjective scarcity, which is I feel like I don't have enough time. I feel like I don't have enough money because yeah. I see my friend just went to Mykonos on Instagram. And those experiences, I think, are, if anything, are increasing in our daily life. So understanding how they carry over and affect our behavior, I've, I have found endlessly interesting and fun to pursue. Yeah. So essentially, like the, the area of study, just so I can kind of wrap my brain around it a little bit, the area that you study is really not in the extremes of like people who are really lacking like mm -hmm. food, shelter, like right. kind of in when we're talking Maslow's hierarchy here, yeah. they're not at, like at that basic level, but because we're exposed to such... Uh, media and social mm -hmm. media that basically says we're running out of everything and yeah. you need to panic a little bit. Yeah. And so you study kind of that middle of the road group. Right. So talk to me, maybe like just two or three things that as you started studying how a scarcity mindset impacts us, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you discovered that jumped out at you that were yeah. like surprising? And, you know, our audience is really in obviously the a lot of it business leadership yeah. and marketing Good. and how that impacted that. Sure. I should say, I only publish in marketing journals, or I try, right, to only yeah. publish in marketing journals, occasionally psychology journals. So if, if we're speaking to a marketing audience, right, like we all are interested in the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, even though sometimes our papers can veer a little bit more towards the like cognitive psychology frame, at the end of the day, like I care about selling stuff, right? Yeah. And I care about what gets people to buy X over Y. So I'm happy to always tie the research findings back into that kind of domain. Uh, but so I'll circle back to that. So to get started, one thing that, again, this ties into my experience on Survivor that I had, which was this experience that even though people on Survivor were experiencing a ton of scarcity in different forms, and it was threatening and scary, even though I didn't think like CBS was actually going to let us wither away and die. Yeah, like yeah. it is hard, right? Yeah. When you're having like 400 calories a day, if you're lucky yeah. for multiple, you know, for going on and on and on. I mean, you're watching people wither away. Like one guy in our tribe lost 70 pounds, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's, it's psychologically, it does something to you. You can't, yeah. you can't not be affected by that. But as you point out, one thing that I observed was despite all these very real threats and, you know, people were very, very nice, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought a lot about it in the subsequent years because that was the biggest surprise I had being on the show. Having watched it, like when you watch the show, and rightfully so, right, they edit out all the boring parts. So they yeah. edit out all the sycophantic, like, no, you're great. No, you're great. No, you're fascinating. Oh, you are fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they edit all that out, which is fine. And also, when you're the viewer, you see all those, like, behind-the-tree testimonials where yeah. people sometimes say snarky things. But that's not – people don't say those to other people, That's right? not your experience in the in the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. No. In the, when you're interacting with other humans, right, it, people were very nice. And, I mean, to the point that I thought it was, like, a little disappointing, right? Because on some <laughs> level – you know these people have to be saying snarky things about you behind the tree, right? Yeah. So I, I found it confusing. Even at 21, I was like, come on, guys. We don't like each other this much, right? Like, yeah. this is a little over the top. So that was interesting from a scarcity perspective, trying to think about, like, why 
in this climate when everybody should be kind of putting themselves first. It, I mean, it's a game for a million dollars, right? Yeah. It, it, even if you abstract away from all the fact that we didn't have enough food or water or shelter, we're still competing for a million dollars, right? Yeah. Only one person's going to win. So really, a lot of the literature even would predict that there would be people would be much more aggressive and hostile. And that was just not my experience. And what I thought about with the show was really this, I mean, I think it was if you think about it, maybe everyone who's listening is like, duh, Kelly, this is obvious. But I mean, basically, the only way you were going to advance yourself in the game was if other people liked you, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you couldn't, you had to benefit others to benefit yourself, right? You had to find these kind of win-win things and be nice to people and develop positive relationships. And even though maybe the underlying psychology was based on this desire to get ahead and selfishness, on the other hand, right, the outcome, if you think about this from an, a business standpoint or an organizational behavior standpoint, the outcome is very positive, right? That people are, it's a better culture because there's not enough to go around, right? Yeah. So we are leaning on each other. We are trying to help each other. And and that was one like real life experience that got me interested in studying that um, in my academic research. And what else is interesting too is once we started to kind of peel back the onion and say like, okay, how do we think, like I said, I study these cues, scarcity related cues, how they would affect interpersonal behavior. If you look at the literature, which is what you're supposed to do before you actually start testing it on people, yeah. <laughs> there's these really strong conflicting predictions because basically you have this literature by this guy, Paul Piff, uh, who's at UC Riverside, who's super smart and is a psychologist. And his research studies um, socioeconomic status, which deals with income, but also deals with kind of your status in society. And uh, what he finds is people, what you think of as being on the bottom of the pyramid or down, down the social ladder is a lot of what he looks at. Those people are nicer to each other. Right. They're mm. more generous. They're more giving. And the people at the top are less so. They're more selfish. Right. Interesting. So that's a strong finding out of this um, psychology literature by Piff and colleagues. What the literature kind of says is basically, or at least one reading in the literature would be that having less makes you a better person and uh -huh. having more makes you kind of a jerk. Interesting. Right? But that would strongly predict is you take a Northwestern undergraduate or a relatively kind of middle of the distribution person, expose them to a scarcity related cue, and if they feel like they have less, they should be nicer, right? That's yeah. the, that was the clear prediction from that literature. But then you can contrast that with the literature in economics, which is totally the opposite, right? The, and economics is obviously like devoid of psychology or social psychology, and it's kind of cold and cognitive, but that's clearly like supply and demand. If there's less to go around, we're going to compete harder for what remains, right? Yeah. You know, if gas prices go way up, it's not like people are like, no, you take the gasoline. I don't need to drive today. Like people yeah. fight to get the gas and they pay more, and the people who have more to pay get more gas. Like that's classic economic econ 101. So we had these nice conflicting predictions, which is great because either way we win, right? If we show Paul Piff is right, that's cool. If we show that economists are right, that's cool. And we bring it into the lab. And what we found was with these middle of the road people, our Northwestern undergraduates, our online panelists, when we expose them to scarcity related cues, so like getting them to think about not having enough of various common everyday resources, they did become more selfish. So mm. in contrast with this perspective that I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not belittling the PIF research. I'm not saying people at the bottom of the pyramid aren't more generous. I'm sure they are. I'm sure his research is right. But I'm saying if you take someone in the middle and you threaten their resources, they do not act like people at the bottom, right? They act, well, I guess more like people at the top, but they they protect themselves. Yeah. And I think from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. If the world, it's like, you know, I don't think of it like people become cruel if you expose them to scarcity-related cues, but it's more like on the airplane, you know, you put your own mask on before you put on the children's, right? Because, yeah. and, and we have data that in fact supports that pattern. It's really not so much that people who are exposed to these scarcity-related cues want to tear other people down as much as they want to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and also, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? Like, yeah. I think we do need to protect ourselves, especially if we're facing a threat like scarcity. I just don't think 
taking care of yourself, especially if you're exposed to a scarcity related threat or any kind of threat. I don't think that's bad, mm -hmm. right? I don't, I think, and there's lots of like this book, Essentialism, I think it's by Greg McCune, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this boundaries book, like there's lots of popular press books these days that support the notion that like giving and giving and hemorrhaging to others isn't a way to move yourself forward either, right? There's something healthy about protecting yourself and understanding that you need to secure your basic survival needs if you want to help other people too. Yeah. And so that those results never bothered me. Some people found them depressing, especially because what I talk about in the TED Talk is what we found is if you take people like our Northwestern undergraduates and you expose them to scarcity-related cues, generally they're more selfish, but if you highlight that by helping others, they can help themselves. So you highlight that basically there's something in it for them to help other people. They actually became the most helpful and the most generous. So really they were like laser focused on these win-win opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I also think that's a positive outcome, right? Because yeah. I think these win-win opportunities actually expand the pie. I think they're good for everyone. We'll be right back with the rest of JJ's conversation with Dr. Kelly Goldsmith in just a moment. Well, some of you are wondering, you're listening to this, and you're wondering, how do I position my products and services so they move more, so they sell more, and so more people are interested? Or how do I position my nonprofit so more people donate? Or how do I position myself as a leader so people actually care? Well, part of it is scarcity. A big chunk of that is actually just understanding the story brand framework. And you're familiar with it, but you've never spent 48 hours just getting the work done and applying it to what you're doing. We have an opportunity coming up in December. We have a StoryBrand marketing workshop that takes place in Nashville, Tennessee, and you can register at storybrand.com. A lot of people bring somebody else on their team so they can co-create their brand script and the talking points that they will use to move their products and services. You will leave with seven categories of talking points and also a skeleton marketing plan. We will teach you how to wireframe a website come up with lead generators, create a one-liner, all the practical tools that you need to plug those words into so that you can actually execute your plan. If you're going into 2020 and you're not sure how you're going to grow, that is you want to grow, you're setting ambitious goals, but you don't know how you're going to do it, come to the StoryBrand Workshop. We will give you a game plan. Again, register at storybrand.com and we will see you soon. One of the things we talk about at StoryBrand a lot is being a generous brand. Mm -hmm. That you, it helps build reciprocity Absolutely. and it creates a win-win. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, you and I talked about this, is that what people, it gets a bad rap to say, oh, you're going to be generous mm -hmm. in order to get something yes. back. And that gives kind of a fake altruism yeah, kind exactly. of perspective. But it's actually not about that. It's yeah. really about the win-win. Yeah. We are trying to, from a story brand perspective, help our customers win. Yeah. And when they win, we you also win. win. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a wonderful perspective. And I think this notion, I think we need to rebrand the win-win because somewhere along the way, it went from, you know, habit four of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people is find the win-win, which sounded great, yeah. right? When he wrote the book probably 30 plus years ago. But so nowadays today, if you're looking, if you're expecting any form of reciprocity, somehow it's this impure altruism and that kind of can get maligned. And I find that to be confusing because I think, you know, if you can help yourself, great. If you can help other people, great. But I do see 
an additive value if you can do both at the same time. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, especially from if you're trying to sell something, right? Like that's yeah. the best case scenario. Yeah. So how then, okay, let's, let's talk about that. So in a world where there is often a scarcity mentality, mm -hmm. how do people who are trying to market a product, they're yeah. trying to run a business, how do you be generous mm -hmm. and work towards a win-win in a scarcity mindset? Like what are things that people should be looking at, thinking about, working towards? That's really interesting. I mean, I think one thing that is interesting to me, which I think maybe doesn't work is post like immediately post recession if you look at what was happening in advertising there was this huge push towards like family values and like you know we're all yeah we don't have enough we're all going to come together around the table and actually I mean there's nothing wrong with that and I think that must have if I, I mean I wasn't in the room when advertising people were designing these ad messages but yeah. if I was trying to guess what they might have been thinking you have a culture where people felt kind of crappy right like everyone's bank accounts everyone's retirement accounts are taking a hit people feel bad let's give them some feel good messaging right like yeah. you feel bad it seems like mood repair they're going to be attracted to feeling good but actually what we've seen in the data is when people have scarcity on their mind they actually respond really strongly to messages about self-improvement so mm. and and I think it can be tied back to this notion of what we call competitive fitness, that if the world is running out of jobs, you benefit from being the smartest, the best trained, you know, the most best interpersonal skills, et cetera. So, and that's one, we have data that supports this, that during the recession, you know, these Tony Robbins seminars and all these things where they're expensive, right? Yeah. And so you can imagine that's a discretionary expense that should go through the floor. But in fact, it, you know, enrollments went up. And even if you look at MBA program enrollments, again, discretionary expense, usually they go up as the economy goes down. Interesting. Because when it's more competitive for jobs, people are like, okay, if I'm going to be the, you know, I need to get what's left. I'm going to make myself the best me I can be. Yeah. So personally, and again, we have data that supports this. I think if people have scarcity on their mind, at least, again, the people I study, so your average person uh, who's experiencing these threats in their environment, it's fine to emphasize how your product can help them improve. And again, that's yeah. the win-win. Like, no one's pretending you don't make money selling your product, right? Yeah. You should. Of course you should, right? Yeah. It's not a nonprofit. So you're going to benefit because you're developing their relationship as a customer. They're going to benefit because you're highlighting essentially like what's in it for them with respect to them becoming, improving on these important self-relevant dimensions. Yeah. Wow. As you're talking, what it makes me really excited because we've been basically teaching this mm -hmm. about, you know, that a lot of times when you work with a story brand framework, when you're writing a good story for a mm -hmm. customer, you are casting an aspirational identity. Mm -hmm. So you're calling people to become a better version of themselves. Perfect. And it's not, you can overdo it, you mm -hmm. know, in the sense sure. where you can overpromise mm -hmm. and kind of be a little manipulative. But one of the ways that you serve your customers help in their transformation, of help course. them actually become somebody different. And right. that, even if it's just, like you said, smarter, better, faster, yeah. more organized, Whatever it is. Yeah, all yeah. of those things stress-free. Mm -hmm. That's an aspirational identity that Absolutely. you can actually call people to. And mm -hmm. speaking to that in your marketing Absolutely. actually works in mm -hmm. the context yeah. of a scarcity mentality. Yeah, it resonates with what they're really looking for. That's and interesting. I think, yeah, and I think that the... Um, I'm trying to think of like what else people do in their marketing. Like a lot of times back in the day in grad school, because in grad school I worked for the Yale Center for Customer Insights. And so we'd have real clients coming in asking questions about how they should do their messaging. And there's oftentimes some brands or some products want to have this very functional utilitarian positioning that's at the level of the benefit, like or at the level of the attribute, right? Uh -huh. And and that's okay, but that's not aspirational. When you say right? attribute, like the feature that the product offers? Yeah, or? like the like in terms of the if it's a Dyson vacuum, it's uh -huh. how much it sucks up. And, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Like so kind of the attributes and features. People want to just yeah. go down to that. Exactly. Yeah. They want to go down to this kind of very low, nitty-gritty, concrete level. Yep. And so uh, back 
in the Yale Center of Customer Insights, this is like 2004 to 2009, we talked a lot about the value of what we called abstracting up. So instead of being at this really low level of the nitty gritty features, like when does it benefit the brand to abstract up into more of the why? Like this is pre-Simon Sinek, right? This like <laughs> find the why of your brand. And you know how can you translate that in a way that matters? What brands does it work for? What brands does it not work for? But now what's kind of cool about this, my, what I think is cool about my research on scarcity, I'm just brag on myself, um, is it adds another layer. It's not just about the why, right? Because there's different whys. There's different yep. whys that you should buy anything, but it's really that important self-relevant dimension that this product, service, brand, et cetera, is going to allow you to become better on. Yeah. I love that. What it gets me excited is when you and I sat down, I saw so much overlap between mm -hmm. your research and the story and basically saying, it's calling people into a story. It's totally. calling your customers into a story and helping them transform, become mm -hmm. somebody else. And when you speak to that, right. you're creating a win-win both for your client and your business. Absolutely. I, I really love what you said is that a lot of times, let's not pretend we, we're not making money off of this. Everybody, right. And when you do, then you lose credibility with your audience. Absolutely. Like, let's just be honest. Yeah. No, when you buy this, I win. But also, here's the reality. You win. Yeah. We, we are here to guide you in your story and help you become who you're supposed to be. Absolutely. Every consumer brand relationship should be that way. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So where do you see, like, what's some of the things you're studying now in the marketing scarcity world? So marketing scarcity, I mean, one thing that you touched on earlier that we can circle back to is this notion of like real hardcore scarcity marketing tactics, like Cialdini principle. I think it was Maybe the sixth principle of influence, I think is seven principles of influence. Always good to have seven principles, right? Always. It's a lucky number. Um, so so scarcity was one of his seminal influential tactics. And for that reason, right, it's been a mainstay of the marketer's toolkit for a long time, probably since marketing was invented. Maybe one of the first tactics they had was like, get it now before it's gone. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that I'm interested in is um, how these kind of seminal marketing principles that in some cases originated a long time ago, right? How have they evolved as the way in which people consume has changed so dramatically? Yeah. Like for example, obviously like we shop online now, everything's delivered in two days or less. One thing that's really interesting to me is the fact that nowadays there's so many substitutions for any given product, service, et cetera. And that could be, you know, for Crest toothpaste, Crest whitening toothpaste, there's, you know, how many websites can you buy it on? I don't, yeah. I, you probably can't count that high. Yeah. So there's just like within, there's not just within category, there's within product substitution sort of across retailer, but there's also, you know, substitutions in the sense that there's other brands and there's, you know, I'm sure people, there's some people who brush their teeth with charcoal. So there's new yeah. solutions. And essentially what it all comes down to is the consumer in this day and age has an unprecedented access to information that, that, you know, back in the day, when you think about how people consume consumed, you went to your local grocery store, of which there might be one, uh -huh. and you know you bought what was there. And if they were running a scarcity marketing promotion where this deal only lasted so long, you were psyched to get it yeah. because that was the best deal you were going to be exposed to. Whereas nowadays, like for example, if I get something in my inbox that says 24 hours to buy this 20% off you know, an iPad, I can Google how many other sites and see like, is that actually a good deal? Should I be doing this? And so what I, one thing that from the sort of scarcity marketing standpoint that I've been interested in is when does scarcity marketing actually lead to that classic effect that my colleague Ming Zhu, who's great and is at John Hopkins, which she has found uh, those scarcity marketing tactics, they work because they increase arousal. Like uh -huh. fundamentally your body, you get excited, right? Like your heart starts beating a little bit faster. So well, you're, you're like 
countdown clocks, yeah, countdown clocks. you know, end at, like launch, launching a new product mm-hmm. or something like that. And you say, oh, it's buy one, get one free, but only for this week. Exactly. So that does work because it arises. You get, like it gets your heart pumped. Like yeah. it's a threat in a way because you might not get it and nobody, yeah. you know, nobody wants to miss out. Right. And so that's why historically they've worked so well is physiologically we respond to them. One thing I'm interested in, though, is like when do you get people actually clicking buy versus when are people more likely to click search? Right. Uh-huh. And so when it, it's not that they necessarily are doubting the retailer or they're mad at the retailer, but in this day and age, because we have unprecedented access to information, when does a good deal actually prompt us to consider, like, wait a second, there could be other better deals? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's really interesting to me. And that just, again, ties into a broader research program of how do these, you know, marketing 101, how tactics, right? How have they evolved as consumption behavior has evolved? And, you know, the learning curve, not the learning curve is the wrong word, but the change, the rate of change in consumption behavior is like a hockey stick, right? Like yeah. we just keep getting, if we have more access to information when the internet was invented, right, or became mainstream in the early, very, very early 2000s, right? Now, 20 years later, it's so much more. And 20 years from now, what's that even going to be, right? Yeah. How are we going to shop? So I think that that's, it's super fascinating. As somebody who grew up hanging out in a mall, right? Like it's just yeah. what my kids are going to experience is just so qualitatively different than the way I consumed that I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff. I'm excited to see what that brings. Oh, I'm <laughs> like excited slash scared. Like I don't actually like to see Giants fall. Yeah. I miss the mall, right? Yeah. Every time I see these sad, sad articles about all the malls across America closing, I'm like, but where are the teenagers hanging out? Yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's super interesting. I love it. Well, you know, like I said kind of earlier, the, the thing that I think excited me about hearing kind of your research and what it does is that there are some general kind of things that are out there about sc- scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And we all know like the countdown clock does work, but yeah. you've kind of studied why it works. Mm-hmm. And that it potentially is changing in the future. And also the idea that a lot of brands that we work with feel like if I give too much away, right. that it actually is going to hurt my business. Right. And the research actually shows the opposite of that yeah. is too, when you can create those things. And so it just, it, I love being a part of a tribe that really thrives it with the spirit of generosity mm-hmm. and thrives in a spirit of like helping others and not purely like for no motive, but like yeah, you're yeah, helping yeah. yourself and others. And I love like when we started talking, why I wanted you on the podcast is because I got so excited that, oh, the research backs this up. Mm-hmm. This is not just a heart thing yeah. for me of where I want people to be generous and mm-hmm. everything. And we've seen how much that's served our brand, yeah. you know, and we give away a lot of information, Sure, but we also charge for information and should. we're okay with both. Yeah. You you're know? a business, right? You got to keep yeah. the lights on, yeah. right? Now I work at a university. It's not like there's no tuition, right? I guess yeah. for some people you get a deal, but, but for most people, most of the time. Yeah, I love that. And then, I mean, you've studied all, you know, now we could, this is why we could talk forever is because not only the scarcity model, but you've talked, you know, you've done a lot of research Mm -hmm. and stuff. So let's kind of just close out. I want to close out this time of you in talking about the scarcity model and kind of the way that it impacts your marketing, Mm -hmm. but also how things are continuing to change. Right. You really are an expert in research and behavioral research. And Mm -hmm. so for brands who are kind of already, they've got some marketing that works, Mm -hmm. they've got some even aspirational identity that Mm -hmm. works for them and their story and they're giving away free information but want to test the market right right so talk to me about like just a little bit for them some really practical things Mm -hmm. that they should be thinking through about researching their customer and how to engage you have another two hours i know i'm used to teaching (laughs) like like a 10-week class on market research yeah um i mean i think the short answer is Data collection and kind of consumer behavior, like measuring consumer attitudes has become so much more sophisticated even since I began in the field 15 years ago in 2004, right? So it used to be 
people just did surveys, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then maybe the occasional focus group. But now, I mean, between you can do like put cookies on the computer and watch their tracking behavior. You can do eye tracking. You can look at neuromarketing. Like there's so many different opportunities. And I think some of them are unproven. Like I think with neuro, there's good applications. And then there's times people want to use it because it's flashy, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily lend very meaningful insights. So I think, you know, much like everything in consumer behavior is evolving. I think there's a lot that's evolving in the research space. And I hope this is going to circle back to address your question, but I wanted to raise this because I think it's relevant to what you guys do here. I had this super fascinating research call last weekend with, it was like two of the top consumer behavior researchers in the world. I don't know why I got included on the call. And then two like philosophy professors, right? Which usually mm -hmm. when you get people, it's like very sexy to think like, oh, you bring people across disciplines and it's going to lead to this fruitful academic insight. But usually it's complete train wreck because uh -huh. um, nobody <laughs> speaks the same language and it goes nowhere. Yeah. But actually, I actually thought this was a rare opportunity when the call like sparked a lot of ideas and not, not tested ideas, but just really novel perspective on consumer behavior. And the general kind of premise of the conversation was that what like basically it used to be all about measuring consumer satisfaction, yeah. right? Like one to seven scale, how satisfied are you with the product? Or you could look at repurchase rates, stuff like that. And the guy who kind of organized the whole thing was basically like, let's not kid ourselves. Like this is not what matters anymore. Like satisfaction is still part of it. Like your mm -hmm. actual concrete, like visceral satisfaction with your product or service or brand, it matters, but it's only part of it. And like, what are the other things we're getting out of consumption that we should be measuring if we really want to understand what consumers are going to choose and how they're going to behave. And so we were tossing around lots of different ideas. But one thing that I thought that came out of that conversation, which was really interesting, was to me, if you look at, again, going way back to my sociological roots, right? If you look at kind of macro trends just across um, psychology here, we could just look at the U.S. alone, like loneliness is increasing, isolation is, de is increasing, religiosity is decreasing. Even the way people live, people move further and further than ever before from where they grew up. So really like our ability to have a community that we're part of uh, in our physical space is just different than it was when my parents were growing up, where you, when my parents were growing up, you lived where you grew up, you lived by your parents, you went to your parents' church, or, yeah. you know, it was much more contained. Whereas now, you know, the best students from all over the world go to the best universities and move thousands of miles away from their family sometimes, and sometimes they never come back. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have this basic need for affiliation. And so what we started talking about was the role of consumer behavior in creating that affiliation. Mm. And I think it's really possible that we consume to create relationships in a way that we didn't historically, right? Like you look at online brand communities and even these Reddit communities, like there's plenty of Reddit communities, for example, that trash Survivor, yeah. but they're still communities and yeah. they still all watch Survivor, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so I think I think it's interesting to think of basically like when we make a choice, I mean, the cars we buy, not just the neighborhoods we choose to live in, not just the big ticket items, but the show, TV shows we watch, the podcasts we consume, right? Mm -hmm. We're joining a community with all of those decisions in part because... The community, we're not just the community we're born into anymore, right? Yeah. The it's kind of our community is ours to create. And I think our consumption behavior plays a big role in that. And if you're a smart brand, what you need to do is be able to engage in a relationship with your customers so that they feel that sense of community. They feel yeah. like they have a relationship, not like it's transactional, yep. right? And I think that's what's one thing that StoryBrand does so well is that they do teach people to create that sense of community and that sense of connection. And I think in consumer behavior that that's only going to become more important. And I think it's very possible we're moving to a universe where sort of the community we get to engage in by virtue of our consumption is is just as important as our satisfaction from the consumption itself.
Interesting. I love that because that gets me excited <laughs> about creating community and joining together. And I think that's a real practical thing that people can actually engage in, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of our, our listeners are, they're sub $5 million brands, right? Mm -hmm. They're smaller companies, mid-sized. A lot of them are startups, they're oh, in leadership. Cool. And so, you know, when you talk about the neuro research and all that stuff, some of that is a little probably beyond what they're capable or want to be able to engage yeah. in. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty and just ultimately say, like when you're building a community that is about helping people transform becoming the best version of themselves mm -hmm. not only are they going to win but you're going to win in the long run Absolutely. and so i love that so kelly thank you so much for being here thank like i said we could talk for hours leave. and hours and hours yes. about this stuff. i'm moving into this glorious little place <laughs> yes. how um if people are interested in kind of learning more about your research and talks and and everything where can they find you they can go to my website which is profgoldsmith.com because kelly goldsmith.com was like a thousand dollars and profgoldsmith.com was twenty dollars so yeah you can go to prof goldsmith.com and also like I'm on Instagram and Twitter a prof goldsmith was available everywhere nice. so I'm all the prof goldsmith on all the social media love it LinkedIn that too awesome well thank you so much and um, I'm excited to see where your research goes yay thank you for having me JJ that was fascinating yeah it, it actually you know more or less proves scarcity works it does work but yeah. it's not the only thing that works yep generosity so, yeah also generosity works. which is been our play for years yeah we're extremely generous with what we offer yeah and our rooms fill up yeah you know so i'm glad to hear that yeah because i there's a part of you that there's a part of you that kind of just feels like being a little bit manipulative yeah <laughs> you know and anymore you can kind of see through it i was invited to a conference the other day that you know it's a group of, of leaders and then you had to have a password to get in you had to call somebody to get the password yeah. and, and i was like i'm out yep because these are not, you know, world leaders here. Yes. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is clearly some sort of manipulative tool to get me to think that I got invited in and I'm out. Well, and I think ultimately when you try to create scarcity out of manipulation and you try to like kind of manipulate people into buying, people now see through that they so easily it. and you are then seen as inauthentic and then people don't trust you. And then the money that there is scarce to them, they go to somebody else. You know, right. it's really interesting. I, I, I'm buying stereo equipment for Goose Hill. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to interview Jonathan Weiss. He's, he, he runs a company called Oswald's Mill Audio. I'm fascinated with how he does business. Yeah. Part of the reason his equipment, it's supposed to be the best equipment in the world. And part of the reason it's actually successful is he's kind of like, well, I made three of those. Yeah. I made four of these. I, I think we have one of those left. He's an yeah. artist. Yeah. Like, they're, these are not turntables. They're paintings to him. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And it's it's fascinating. But part of it is scarcity. Yep. And he's able to charge more. Yeah. The stuff I'm buying is like the low-end stuff he mass produces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he gave me a peek into his actual warehouse yeah. and shop and how he does things. You were telling me about it. Unbelievable. Yeah, he's got these these speakers that I asked how many he sold, and he said just 10 in 10 years. Yeah. You know, that's it. And he, he'll make them if you buy them, and they're they're probably the best speakers in the world. But he's he's an artist. It's, re it's really fascinating. But it's scarcity. He's yeah. able to charge a lot more. Yep. Not just because they're great speakers, although that's the big reason, but because I ain't doing this again. I'm doing it yeah. three times, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, and that's it. And so there, there's some interesting plays in here. Yeah. And he had incredibly generous with his time, and you can yep. come look at him, and you can listen to him and listen to records with him and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's some some deep psychological truths in this episode that I yeah. think are really fascinating. So, JJ, thanks for taking the time no to do problem. that. No well, problem. Listen, everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Music on this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew on Oswald's Mill Audio Equipment if you want to, or just at Spotify or Apple Music. 
And as always, thanks for listening. We believe that if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. 